Tonight's scripture is from James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. <laughs> know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah, for that good word. Sweet. If I could take a run and come up with a message like that, I think I might might have to try that. Well, this summer we've been trying a little experiment, and I've asked you to kind of imagine for a moment that we are an urban monastery. And that's not familiar to a lot of us, but uh, I'm bringing it back up because it's one of the ways God has blessed cities for over 1,500 years. And I've asked you to play around with this, this little definition. An urban monastery seeks the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. And uh, what we've been looking at is, is how we might bless our city by offering hospitality to our neighbors in our city. And the first part of the summer, we, we talked about hospitality to people kind of out there that you might not necessarily know very well. But then it occurred to me, and I think it probably occurred to you, that actually sometimes the the most challenging people to offer hospitality to are the people you're actually very close to, Uh, the people that you live with, the people that you work with, uh, your pastor perhaps, you know, things like that. Um, I've read that that can be a problem. So we're looking at a passage from James that gives some instruction about how to have hospitable conversations, how to create spaces uh, that are hospitable. And I've been giving you little examples from church history to kind of show you how this has played out over the centuries. And we've been looking at at St. Francis. Uh, So let me just tell you a quick little story about him. St. Francis and the leper. Uh, I think we have a painting there, yeah, or an icon. And Francis uh, lived in the early uh, 13th century, and he grew up in a little village called Assisi in, in Italy, and he really hated lepers. Uh, they scared him to death, and he was terrified of them. And in that culture, they were very contagious, and so they would ring a bell when they saw another villager coming, and then everybody would run away. And Francis had a conversion experience, and one day he was riding by, and he saw a leper, and the leper rang the bell, and he started to run away, and then St. Francis heard a voice, and the voice said, Get off your horse and go kiss him. And that's what Francis did. Took his wounds, and we don't have much leprosy in most of our cities today. If you've been in a leper colony, you know that these poor folks have really, really challenging issues with their skin and disfiguration and pus and all sorts of stuff. And he knelt down, grabbed the man's hands and kissed him, and then began attending the leper colony down the road every week as part of their hospitality. And that became a part of this whole Franciscan movement, which are often called the Friars. And it came out of a particular theology where he felt like he wasn't better than anyone else. And it comes out in a song he wrote about Brother Sun and Sister Moon and and, and things like that, where he felt that we were all somehow connected. And that was a radical idea in his day when you could tell the hierarchy of a person in the city by what they wore. And Francis said, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. We're going to wear lay clothes, or we're going to hang out with lepers. And that, uh, I think, is a great model 
for how to bless a city, is to find Christ in the presence of the most broken. Well, we've been praying about uh, this hospitality question, and, and James 1, 19-20 has continued to come to mind. And as I've thought about what this might say to our congregation, you know, last spring we talked about being a slow church, being a, a church where we have time to have the kind of conversations that really saturate us with Christ and lead us to the gospel. Um, and there's a wonderful quote that was shared with us when we took the collaborative communication uh, course. This guy was being interviewed by a, a lady named Krista Tippett. And he says, when is the last time that you had a great conversation? A conversation that wasn't just two intersecting monologues, which is what passes for conversation a lot in this culture. But when had you last a great conversation in which you overheard yourself saying things that you never knew you knew? That you heard yourself receiving from somebody words that absolutely found places within you that you thought you had lost. And a sense of an event of a conversation that brought the two of you onto a different plane. And then fourthly, a conversation that continued to sing in your mind for weeks afterwards. I love that. What a beautiful picture of sacred, holy conversations. And so I think actually this passage in James is about how you have those kind of conversations. It's kind of the essence of hospitality. So last week we spent some time thinking about what it meant to be quick to listen. And this week we're looking at the little phrase being slow to speak. What does it mean to be slow to speak? Well, sometimes our Lord chooses not to speak at all when addressed. Uh, When the high priest demands that he tell him who he is, Jesus says nothing. Uh, There's a couple other examples. Uh, Isaiah 53, a prophecy that's often quoted of the Lord, describes our Lord this way. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. So one of the distinguishing characteristics of our Lord was that he was slow to speak. That sometimes he just would not respond at all. And there are times when that may actually be the best response, particularly maybe an angry conversation or an unjust conversation. I I think it was Mark Twain that said, I never, ever regretted something I didn't say, um, which is a, a wise saying. Sometimes we can be slow to speak by continuing to listen. And I know that's so hard to do because we want to share what's on our mind. But, but we can actually take longer to draw forth and clarify what the other person is saying. When I was in seminary, we were introduced to a a particular school of psychology uh, founded by a man named Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers built a whole school of therapy on something he called active listening or reflective listening. And essentially, it's just paying deep attention to what a person is saying. And I remember we saw this video in, uh, in, in seminary, and I remember thinking, this is cheesy. Because um, they taught us to do this technique called parroting. And it felt so forced because you were to sit down and you'd role play it in the class and someone would say, I'm, I'm kind of struggling staying awake today. And you'd say, having a little hard time staying awake today? 
Um, yeah, I am. I was up last night. You, so you were up last night? You know, and that sounds dumb, doesn't it? You know? But you got to start somewhere. And so we had this assignment. You had to go find someone on campus to practice active listening with for like 20 minutes. I forget the exact assignment. And I remember thinking, this is the stupidest thing in the world. I'll never use this in ministry. So I found Marsha, who was the, I was teaching English at the time. She was the secretary at the English department. And I said, Marsha, this is really stupid, but could we set up a time where you just uh, let me do this dumb active listening thing? You know, that's a great way to set it up, right? <laughs> create a lot of opportunity there. So we sit down in this conference room. Two hours later, she is weeping. She says, I've never, ever told anybody that. I never knew I felt that way. Within a month, she had quit her job, (laughs) gone back to school, (laughs) and changed her entire career path. (laughs) Now, obviously, that's God, but I think she just had never had anybody listen to her. There's just so much power in, in this. There really is... Uh, there's a a writer named Parker Palmer who talks about something called a clearness committee that comes out of the Quaker movement in the 60s, the 1660s. And the idea is when you have a real big issue that you're wrestling with, you get a handful of good friends together and you state the question, the problem, you know, should I get married? Should I leave my job? You know, should I go back to grad school? Whatever it is, you state the question and the, the issues and then the people in the committee, those eight friends, can sit around, and the only thing they can ask are open-ended questions. The only thing they can say is, so why do you think about that, or what are you afraid of, or, or what's the problem there? And they're not allowed to say, you know, when I had that situation, here's what I did, Brad. Or, you know, I just heard this podcast. you got to hear it. All that stuff. You don't do it. And, and Palmer tells this story about a time when he was asked to become the president of a, of a prestigious college. And he put the clearness committee together, and they were slow to speak. For two hours, they just asked him questions. And he says what he realized about 90 minutes in was that the only reason he ever would want to be the president of this college was to please his father, that he hated the idea of being a president of a college, and that he never should take the job. <laughs> and all of that came out of just being slow to speak. Now, I tried this once about 17, 15 years ago, a very important moment in my life with, with eight men who were very kind of businessy, strong, action-oriented, type A decision makers. I even gave them Parker Palmer's book. I laid it out. I said, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how you solved it. Just ask me open-ended questions. They lasted eight minutes. <laughs> they were terrible. <laughs> it was a waste of time. So you've got to have some discipline here to be slow to speak. Now, I thought of another example of just, just slowing down to make sure you understand a person. I was, I was reading a, a book earlier this summer called The Lean Startup about entrepreneurs, and the author talks about the, 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 the principle of the five whys. And some of you business people know this. This is all new to me because I read goofy stuff, not business people, but this summer I, I read real stuff. And What he says is, too often we solve a problem that is the wrong problem because we haven't gone deep enough to the root of the problem, and that if you're in a situation and you really want to get to the root of the problem, ask why five times. 
And he gives a little illustration. Why can't I get everything done at work? Because I have so much to do. Why do you have so much to do? Because I'm getting pulled away from my priorities. Why are you getting pulled away from your priorities? Because I'm the only one that knows how to do it. Why are you the only one who knows how to do it? Because nobody else has been trained. Why has no one else been trained? Because we don't have a training program. (laughs) And so they realize by the five whys that the solution is a training program. So being slow to speak, uh, first of all, means taking more time to listen and ask good questions. And, And I know this sounds like soft stuff, soft churchy stuff that doesn't really matter in the real world. But um, I read an article uh, this week from uh, Lisa Murray's coming in to be with our staff on Wednesday. We're having an off-site training day, and uh, we're working on team building. And, and she gave uh, us an article on, uh, it's called, What Google Learned from Its Quest to Build the Perfect Team. And so Google sets out, as they do everything else, to find the best way to do teams. And so they research you spend millions of dollars on this and find out how what teams are working and why they're not working and all sorts of things matter, right? Goal setting and agenda and clear communication. Here's their bottom line. Psychological safety more than anything else was critical to making a team work. We'd call it hospitality. And then the, the author says, to be fully present at work, to be psychologically safe, we must know that we can be free enough to share things that scare us without fear of recriminations. We must be able to talk about what is messy or sad or to have hard conversations with colleagues that are driving us crazy. We can't be focused on just efficiency. In the best teams, members listen to one another and show sensitivity to feelings and needs. So b- before we, we go on, check, out, check yourself out tonight. Um, I asked you early on to identify a person that you needed to kind of focus on your hospitality with. Um, How much psychological safety is in that relationship? Um, How how safe is it for the school that you teach at, you and your roommate, um, your husband and, and you. Uh, is, it, is it a space where you both feel safe? And maybe if the answer is that, ah, not really. Maybe let's just back up to that quick to listen piece. Maybe just that listening piece can do so much good. As Sandy and I were, uh, I went to marriage counseling uh, about 10 years ago, and um, we had a friend who had some money, and he flew us out of town. And by the way, that's usually how pastors go to counseling, is because the one time, one time I went to counseling here in town, and the room was filled up with a you. <laughs> and so I said, never again. You know, so we were in Texas or someplace like that. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you the drive technique. And I said, what's the drive technique? It's Texas, right? So it's flat. He says, you're going to drive a half an hour that way. She's going to talk. And you're going to turn around and drive a half an hour back. You're going to talk. It was incredible. I couldn't believe what came out after a half an hour. Didn't know it was there. So if you're stuck in a relationship right now, maybe you could back it up even that far to be slow to speak and quicker to listen. 
Well, what about when it is time uh, to speak? Well, James reminds us of our own sin. Verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. One of the things that has to happen when we begin to engage another person's soul with our words is we have to be slow enough to understand what's going on in my own heart at that moment. That's why any kind of serious conversation around texting is just a fool's errand. Anytime you are reacting to a conversation via text, you're not being wise. Now, I'd like us to, I think we have one more slide there. And again, I learned this from our collaborative communication class. Here are some questions that my sinful heart can ask myself when I'm in a conversation. What is my intention in this conversation? What baggage or grudges am I carrying into this conversation? Why, if so, how can I come clean and start off in a healthier place? What are my beliefs and assumptions? Am I willing to change them? Why or why not? What would it take to change my mind? How interested am I in scoring a win? Why? How interested am I in learning? Why? How interested am I in preserving and deepening this relationship? What outcomes matter the most to me? Why? How can these outcomes hinder me or benefit me? It's important to ask these questions because words are so incredibly powerful. Just a couple of scriptures. We could give you dozens. dozens. Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Matthew 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Proverbs 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 16, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edification, as fits the occasion. Mm. You know, I, I don't think I can chapter and verse this, but Words have a spiritual power. There's an energy to words when we speak them. I'm not sure I can find a verse to prove that, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Give you an illustration. Um, This is sort of a a woo-woo illustration, but, um, you know, it's okay. So I, I go to the chiropractor, and he's working on me, and he's talking to me about, you know, how do I handle stress and stuff like that? Um, and, and then he says, stand up. And he says, hold out your arm. So I hold out my arm. And he looks me in the eyes. He doesn't say anything. And he says, resist me. And I, I, I do fine. I'm a big, tough guy. You know, do, do I say, well, what's the problem here, doc? And then he says, put your arm down. He says, all right, put out your arm. Resist me. He doesn't say a thing. I said, let me do that again. Put out my arm. Resist me. Hey, wait, put it up. He had not said a thing. I said, what are you doing? And he says, the first time when you resisted me, I was thinking positive, affirming thoughts towards you. The second time, I was cursing you. 
and your body knew it. I haven't been back. Um, uh, and I can't chapter verse that. But doesn't it make sense that words have power? They really have power. He, there you go, he did. He created the world. Yes, he did. That's good. So we need to be so careful about the words that we speak. Um, we have this Friday morning guys group. You're all welcome, but generally we're all over 50. And uh, one of the guys in there who really does this well is, is Blair Wright. He asks very good questions. He's very curious, asks lots of questions. But when he pushes back in, one of the things that I notice is that it's always around vision. That when he challenges or presses in, it's about, I see this in you, brother. I see this is who you're becoming. And he speaks in in a way to help me move towards where I'm moving in God. He's not shaming or dragging down. Now, let's just use an illustration. A couple of you have come to me lately, and I think this is great. Um, a couple of you have said, you know, I'm just really interested in learning more about listening to God, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, praying together. Uh, I'm thinking about getting a group of people together to just kind of do that. And those of you that have said that, go for it. Do it. I think that's exciting. Now, imagine that you're excited about this. This is really important to you. You decide you're going to meet every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock in your house. You ask seven people. You prayed about it. They're all in. And after two months, one of the persons stops being faithful at all. They just flake out. And you decide that you have to talk to them about that. Now, a shaming approach would be something like, I knew you'd do this. You never keep your promises. Matter of fact, I was warned not to ask you into the group because I knew you'd flake out like this. If you keep doing this, you're never going to get anywhere in life. Nobody's going to trust you. That's essentially a curse. What, what do you think the energy is in that dialogue, right? Uh, imagine if it was something like this. This group means so much to me. I can't believe what's been happening. And you've, you've been a big part of it. Matter of fact, that night when you said, it really helped me. But you've not, been, you've not been coming lately, and you haven't really told anybody why. I've, I've really missed you. you. You don't realize it, but you really are important to me and to the rest of us. Is there anything I can do to help you? See how, how different that is? One is very shaming. One is more oriented towards grace. Well, let's, let's wrap, out like the, wrap up like this. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure we're thinking, but there are times for bold, fierce confrontation, right? I mean, there are, word, there are times for hard words. And Jesus models that at times. 
So what if you feel you should be speaking out prophetically or confrontationally against a great evil or an injustice? Well, let's practice this. First, be quick to hear. Listen well so that you really understand what you're speaking out against. I had a professor in college, Dr. Kikeffer. He said, you cannot critique another person's position until you know it well enough to argue it yourself. So first of all, we need to really understand what's going on. A lot of times, frankly, we get into silos. We listen to everybody saying the same thing, and we don't really fully know what we're talking about. Second, listen to God, too. Sometimes Jesus confronted. Sometimes he was silent. You need to know where the fathers at work. And then three, when you do speak, speak from vision, not anger. This is the best definition of a prophet I've ever heard. A true prophet critiques uh, the, the present while offering a hopeful vision of an alternative future. I'm thinking of prophecy more about social things. They critique the present while offering a hopeful vision of an alternative future. So if you must say hard things, say it with vision, say it with hope, say it with a belief in what God could be doing. One of you wrote me this week and said, even my enemy is made in the image of God and worthy of reverence. And I I think by the the best example I can think of is, is, of course, Dr. King. And just wanted to read a little bit from his letter from the Birmingham jail. He says, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms across my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. And the whole letter is just a beautiful, actually his whole corpus of work is a beautiful picture of preaching hard truth prophetically anchored in respect and reverence for those you disagree with. It's just staggering. So last thought. Give the other person the last word. One of the ways I can tell my heart's not in the right place in a conversation is when I I have to make sure that I get the last word. That tells me that it's ultimately about me and me winning. And one of the things we learned in collaborative communication was there are a couple questions you can ask after a conversation, just things like, So where are you right now? What are you thinking about? And it's a way to kind of wash their feet, really. To let them maybe take one more swipe if they need it. But it's a way that a servant would go about it. So, who are you struggling to practice hospitality towards? I want you to put that, I want you to name the person in your mind right now. Have you listened well to them? Should you listen more before you speak? 
When you did speak, did you speak out of a reaction or a prompting of the Spirit? Were you aware of your motives and goals when you spoke? Did you speak towards a vision for the other person? If you shared hard words, did you show them reverence as a fellow image bearer? Did you give them the last word? Let's pray.